0: Hello, and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Rob LaMorgis. Who is here on this podcast? (laughs) Today is the sixth. And final week in our Get Me Another When Harry Met Sally series. And today we'll be discussing some films from the end of the 90s as the genre moves towards the 21st century. But don't worry, the beginning of our next series, Get Me Another Indiana Jones, is just a few short weeks away. And we are very excited because we'll be exploring a whole array of adventure films and television series from the 1980s that drew inspiration from Steven Spielberg's classic Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is one of the series we've been looking forward to since day one, and we have some fascinating movies to discuss and some terrific guests who will be on the show.
1: For sure. And while we, we're not there yet, my disappointment at the lack of music copying in the When Harry Met Sally series, I think <laughs> we're going we're gonna to get that rectified in this next series. I have a feeling, Chris.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. But before that, we have a few more movies to wrap up this series, and the first of which is 1998's The wedding singer. Before the internet, before cell phones, before rollerblades, there was a time. Everybody on the dance floor. Very nice, Grandma Molly. When Robbie Hart was the most popular wedding singer around. to get some
2: pants on that kid. Until he got stood up at his own wedding.
3: I woke up this morning and I realized I'm about to marry a wedding singer?
2: Once again, things that could have been
0: brought to my attention yesterday! New Line Cinema presents...
3: Is it true that you're in the middle of a nervous breakdown? Whoopity-doo!
0: Adam Sandler.
2: Hey, psycho. Get out of my Van Halen T-shirt before you jinx the band and they break up. And Drew Barrymore. <gasps>
3: You're the wedding singer. How you
2: doing? I'm Robbie.
3: I'm Julia.
2: In a story about finding love where you least expect it. Uh-oh. What? You like her. No, I don't.
3: This is my fiance, Glenn.
2: I don't even know your last name. It's Gulia. Julia's last name is gonna be Gulia. Julia Gulia. That's funny. Why is that funny? I I don't know. I
1: just... Now, the girl of his dreams is about to marry Mr. Wrong. That's grade A, top choice meat.
3: Good morning.
0: You can make breakfast for men. Unless he can pull off the performance of a lifetime.
3: She and Glenn just jumped a plane to Vegas. Go get it. All right, alright. of leaving
1: glenn for the wedding singer he's more than a lover
2: what do you think of the jacket i don't know man i would lose that glove you look nuts he's more than a legend you are the worst wedding singer in the world buddy well i have a microphone and you don't so you will listen to every damn word i have to say
1: the wedding singer i
0: said hip Hop. I hit it to the hit it to the
3: hip, hip hop. you don't stop the rock, to the bang, bang, boom. say up drum the boom to the, rhythm, uh, the, boom, the boom.
0: At first glance, the wedding singer might seem like an odd inclusion in this series with its nostalgic 80s setting and a leading man in Adam Sandler. But underneath all that, You have a classic romantic comedy at at the core, which is very much in the When Harry Met Sally model. The Wedding Singer was written by frequent Sandler collaborator Tim Hurley and directed by frequent Sandler collaborator Frank Corchi, who directed both this film and The Waterboy in the same year. Holy smokes. The Wedding Singer revolves around Robbie Hart a New Jersey wedding singer, and a very good one at that, and Julia Sullivan, a waitress. And at the beginning of the film, both are engaged to be married. But on the day of his wedding, Robbie is left at the altar, sending him into a depressive spiral and making his career a bit difficult, to say the least. Apparently, the idea for the film started with Sandler, who had the idea of a movie about a wedding singer left at the altar and brought it to writer Tim Hurley. It was Hurley who decided to set the film in the 80s, and intended to make it more balanced in terms of male-female perspectives than the, the film Sandler had previously made. To that end, Carrie Fisher was actually brought in to do some uncredited rewrite work. Oh, I never knew that. As I mentioned, the film is set in 1985, and that allows for an absolutely incredible soundtrack of 80s classics. I mean, they went all out on on their, on their needle drop spending budget. My goodness.
1: Yes, this soundtrack is incredible. Uh, I believe there was actually a CD soundtrack of the Needle Drops back in the day. Oh, I'm sure. I need to check the streaming services to see if any of that's up. Because uh, what's interesting is the getting those rights to have these soundtracks streaming uh, is apparently a lot trickier for older films that didn't have those rights. Yeah. Like I know the the Spotting soundtrack's not up. A lot of these Needle Drop ones that are classics aren't. And I will recommend to any of you going to, uh, if you do have a actual physical record store, as, as we do here, those used CDs are still pretty darn cheap. Oh, sure. And you can get yourself some Wedding Singer, your, your Train Spotting. You can get those soundtracks. Highly recommend it.
0: I do not have the uh, the Wedding Singer soundtrack gold. I think I have all of these songs on other albums over, yeah. you know, other collections. But I do have the Train Spotting soundtrack because that is amazing. Oh, yeah. Do, do, how about Train Spotting 2? I have to ask the second one. I love Train Spot. I, I don't have the Train Spotting 2 soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. But I love that movie. Like, that is a terrific sequel. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's one of the best sort of long gap sequels uh, out there. Anyway, The Wedding Singer is interesting because it came out in 98 and it takes place in 85. And this is where I have to comment that, like, since the turn of the century, time has gotten weird. 85 to 98, that's a 13 year difference. 13 years ago from today would be 2010. And there's no way you can tell me that the world looks as different from 2010 to 2023 as it did from 1985 to 1998. What is happening to time? Well, I can tell you it's the fact that 1990
1: was the peak of human civilization and that now it's
0: our time. It's (laughs) our world. <laughs> post-human civilization Yes. Uh, that was yes. A per- that was a perfect agent Smith by the way <laughs> oh thank you <laughs> it's the smell <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't bad either my man <laughs> so it's uh it's it's just weird like time is weird and I'm not I, I, as I get older I am not a fan of it because this incredible 80s soundtrack but it also created in me a terrible sense of the passage of time and the awareness of my own mortality. It was upsetting. Well,
1: I can uh, just to give a different perspective. Uh, and look, I'm I can be as storm cloudy as anyone else these days. <laughs> but while watching this movie, these were the thoughts running through my head. Man, I know they're making fun of him living at his sister's place, but I would kill for that apartment.
0: I had to say that basement apartment. I was like, Oh <laughs> yeah. no, I'm,
1: I'm there. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And uh... and then I'm thinking
0: things like every movie needs John Lovitz. Yeah. <laughs> I should say at the outset, the three movies today, one of them I had never seen, one of them I saw in the movie theater, but not since, and one of them I've seen many, many times. And this was the one I had never seen, uh, although my wife had seen it. But I I really liked it. I I thought it was, you know, it's charming. I mean, it's a cartoon 80s. It's not a realistic, necessarily depiction of the eighties. No. Like you didn't go to the the airport and have the guy with the flock of seagulls hair checking your ticket in. Like contrast that with the more of the moment depiction of ninety Seattle in singles, which we talked about a few episodes ago. Like this, this is the cartoon eighties, and I'm here for it.
1: Yeah, and and I would say that in general that this movie, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go here. It's not a romantic comedy, Chris. Oh. It's a comedy romantic
0: Oh, I like it I
1: like it It's The comedy is bigger and more forward And I've Look, I've been harping on it the whole damn series So I'm gonna just <laughs> ram it through to the end This horse has been dead for about three episodes And I'm still beating it <laughs> This is the, at the time, this is the new guard of comedy starting yeah. to take over. And a- every time I was talking about, oh, the masturbation jokes and Forget Paris, or yeah. this or that, or the while you were sleeping meta commentary about the, the oh, I didn't remind of being this orange. <laughs> this is where all of that comedy is landing. Other people were were feeling it and and you know maybe they were of a different era themselves. Yeah this is it landing full force within the context of this kind of romantic comedy. There are obviously absolutely other movies that become more outlandish, but this is not a movie that wants to depict the real world yet i do think it gets to real emotions
0: yes i i agree 100% and and to that end l- let me be this this movie is set in ridgefield new jersey um and i i know i i know new jersey if you listen to the I show got, you figured yeah. out that i am from new jersey um this is california for new jersey if there ever was like i looked the first shot of like establishing shot of somebody's house i'm like there are no houses like that in new jersey it's never that bright like come on yeah. Yeah, I was
1: getting uh text updates about this <laughs> as Chris was starting to watch the movie.
0: <laughs> but 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 what you say I think is really true because the emotional core of this movie is very authentic. It's it's surrounded by a sort of outer shell of outlandish comedy and 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 a cartoon nostalgia, but in a sense, Robbie following being left at the altar isn't all that different from Harry after his marriage falls apart in When Harry Met Sally. Like they're both going through the same emotional journey. Absolutely. And it's that template of having, you
1: know, we started this whole thing with When Harry Met Sally and even Pretty Woman, you know, it, which appears to be kind of an, a more external, high, high concept conflict, but it's not. It is still internal. Right. As we've been going through things have been getting more and more high concept and it almost, this is like landing. This is the landing spot. Even though the other two movies are not, they are still kind of in the older mold mm-hmm. that we'll be discussing. This one seems to be the one where it's taken the external high concept to the extreme. It's now not just a wedding singer who got left at the altar is your high concept. The whole like minute to minute in any scene is high concept in that this whole world is heightened. Yeah and non-realistic in that way they're going for big laughs but they've kept that kind of sweet emotional core like you don't get the 40 year old virgin without this movie right i don't think like right and it's funny because i hadn't seen this in so long i didn't really think of the wedding singer as necessarily a springboard rosetta stone for what will be coming in the aughts but it really does feel that way.
0: Yeah, and talking a little bit about Robbie as a character, I, I wrote down the note, Robbie is basically the personification of the save the cat concept. (laughs) Like, you know, early in the film in particular, we just see him doing stuff that isn't necessarily key to the plot just to establish he's a good guy. Like he helps the kid at the the first wedding who drank too much. He's like, oh, I can't let his parents see him like this. He gives singing lessons to Rosie in exchange for meatballs. On the other end of the spectrum, Julia, the the character played by Drew Barrymore, uh, is is engaged to a complete and total d-bag there's no subtle shades of character here he's just a big a-hole
1: yeah glenn's character he is a a cardboard foil right yeah just one-dimensional and that's and, and designed that way even his choice of 80s totem that he is copying and we'll get we'll get into people copying the celebrity of their choice later in this but What's interesting, and Robbie from the get-go is three-dimensional. The movie is more from his perspective in the beginning. Yes, It balances out as you move on. As it goes on, yes. And you, in the beginning, in the first 10 minutes, you might think that, oh, I don't know much about Julia and that it, you know, it's, it's, she's just there to, you know, for Robbie's growth. But actually after that first initial 10 or minutes or so, you do get more of her internal life and what she wants and you get like her family history or lack thereof what her hopes and dreams are. And you also, I think you start to get a lot of her character that also comes out in her actions, just like with Robbie. Um, It doesn't at first, but it, it gets there. And so you really get that balance.
0: It definitely does. Uh, before being left at the altar, Robbie had had gotten to know Julia kind of casually because uh, they, they were working at the same wedding venue. And Robbie promised to play Julia's wedding when they were both engaged. Like, oh, I'll play your wedding. And he finds himself after the being left at the altar unable to play weddings. Uh, and so instead, he kind of helps Julia with her wedding planning. And that's kind of the second act of this movie. And it's during that time that the friendship grows. And it's What's interesting about this movie is, for such a broad comedy, it really takes its time with building Robbie and Julia's relationship. There's no thunderstruck moment like with Charles and Andy McDowell in in Four Weddings and a Funeral. It's they they get to know each other and get to like each other subtly over time. Which, frankly, the words subtle and Adam Sandler generally don't go together, but they do here. Absolutely,
1: and it's um to to further. It a little bit. The whole reason they're spending that time together is because Glenn has finally acquiesced yes. to Julia wanting to get married, and yet he wants nothing to do with the wedding.
0: A busy baby. I'm just busy. Yeah. I'm work. I'm a bond dealer. He's in gaslighting the... her. Don't, don't call them junk bonds. Yeah.
1: You know. And he just says that. Oh, you you're so much better at that stuff, and I don't want to mess it up. But you know, he doesn't want to do it. No. So she winds up getting Robbie to help. So, you know, right off the bat you know, it's like, oh, one guy wants nothing to do with your wedding and the other guy even though it's not his is going to help you out. Right. So, I mean just this, the the setup right there is is nice and then, yeah, they get all these little moments together where you get to see yeah how and why they're compatible and it, I, I can't really explain it. It's in some ways you could say it's very akin to um, in Sleepless in Seattle, the picking out of the uh, China or yes. whatever with <laughs> yes. uh, Bill Pullman and yes. Meg Ryan but it, but whereas there it's presented as shallow, here it really is presented as these are the day-to-day interactions you will have with anyone that you partner up with. yes. And they're just so nice and lovely. I, I really can't
0: say anything else. Yeah, yeah. no, and, uh, and I will say that this movie has uh, this is something we've seen a couple times. Uh, the in, going all the way back to when Harry met Sally with the uh, with the the New Year's Eve kind of inadvertent kiss. Where two characters and and you know who who aren't necessarily romantic involved kind of kiss because of external circumstances and often realize that there's <laughs> attraction there. Yeah, uh, when Harry and Sally has it, and and there, we've seen it over time. This one has one of the best, <laughs> uh, and way better than the uh, you know the the forced uh, the the mistletoe in in while you were sleeping where, you know, I'm going to kiss my comatose brother's uh, feet, what I believe is my comatose brother's fiance. Here it's really good where there's a whole debate between Julia and Julia's friend Holly about how much tongue is appropriate for a wedding kiss. And that leads to a sample kiss between Julia and Robbie that clearly means more than was intended. Yeah,
1: and, and, you know, look, it's a little bizarre that, you know, (laughs) That Holly is just barreling forward with this without thinking. It will be weird to have you tongue kiss another man right before your wedding, but really, who can turn down someone dressed like Madonna who's insistent? I know. It's just I you, know. you yeah, just have they, to roll through it. Yeah,
0: we talked a little bit about how a, some how how some of these characters style themselves after celebrities, and you know, like Robbie and Julia are kind of their own, but like Glenn styles himself after. Uh, Miami Vice and, and Don Johnson in Miami Vice. Holly clearly, you know, even it gets name checked where she's like, oh yeah, you look like Madonna. That's the idea. Like it's it, it's very funny. And and yeah. you know. Robbie's friend is Michael Jackson. Yeah, Robbie's, Robbie's friend is Michael Jackson including the glove. He's got the glove. Yeah. Take that glove off,
1: man. You look like I him. I know. Robbie's bandmate styled like Boy George. Oh my god. Yeah,
0: if, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> and every <laughs> song he sings is Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? It's hysterical yes. absolutely hysterical <laughs> yeah and and then all of this activity kind of culminates on this double date where Julia and Glenn go out with Robbie and Holly cuz Holly is really attracted to Robbie and the whole it's it's so beautifully awkward there is just this tension in the air through the whole thing and rob cuz Robbie at this point is starting to figure out that he's attracted to Julia Julia probably is, is figuring out that the reverse is also true, but she, neither of them are ready to admit it. And when Julia gets sick and she and Holly leave to go to the bathroom, Glenn just full on admits to Robbie that he cheats on her all the time and has no plans to stop doing so. It's just like, yeah, it's like, man, I work in the city and I work long hours. I'm like, you are the worst, man. Yeah, and
1: shout out to to Jen Howell, who was on a couple episodes yes. ago talking about the fake date trope. Well, yep. <laughs> here, it, this is a great fake date, uh, and it does make for a great scene. Absolutely. And this one is, it's, I think to me, it is like, uh, a, a, it's a key scene for just understanding the movie just overall in that, you know, everything you just said about getting us to where we need to be with some of the character Uh, Mm -hmm. right story. But at the same time, this is a totally ridiculous scene with just, you know, totally ridiculous stuff in it. And it's doing both at the same time. It doesn't necessarily stop being the wedding singer to do sweet moments. It just does sweet moments or critical, you know, or heartfelt moments or critical moments. It does those, but as the wedding singer.
0: Yeah. It's embedded in, in this, in this kind of ridiculous kind of over the top Adam Sandler movie, but it's embedded with sort of genuine, moments in a way that at that point, you know, it's, it's interesting because this movie comes at an interesting time in the career of both Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore. You know, Drew Barrymore obviously had been, had a long career as a, a child actor, you know, and then there was a sort of kind of Rough patch with her as she moved into adolescence, and then adult. She, then she started to take on more uh, mature roles. There was a movie called Boys on the Side that she was a member of the cast, and uh, yeah, obviously the opening, the great opening sequence of the original Scream. But this was kind of the first movie where she was was one of the two leads, and obviously led to her being you know a, a leading actress in in numerous films, including a few more with Adam Sandler. For his part, Sandler had mainly done just broad comedies, but without that core of kind of like genuine emotion. You know, stuff like Billy Madison and Happy Gilmore, which I like. I mean, those are fun movies, but, you know, I think this is sort of a step along the road to get to punch drunk love. And, you know, like you don't get I don't think you get punch drunk love without the wedding scene.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's it's all steps along the way, as you said. And uh, you've brought this up a million times. And I think it is definitely true in this movie, which is the chemistry of the leads are everything in these movies. Yes. In romantic comedies, unsurprisingly. And they have uh, just to, you know, for a moment, uh, Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore, they have great chemistry in here. It's interesting to me in that a lot of the other movies, that great chemistry does seem to at least exude a bit more of the, the sex of it all, right? Yeah. Here, it's not that that wouldn't, you don't necessarily think about it at all. This feels like, and it's it's funny to say in, in an Adam Sandler movie of all, this feels like the most pure and and like storybook kind of love, where it's like, These two people are falling in love with each other. You know, the, you know, sex, marriage, babies can come later. It's not even about that. It's that they're actually falling in love with the personality of the other person.
0: Which, again... Ties it back to when Harry met Sally, which is a whole story about two people yeah. who don't even acknowledge the romantic aspects until they've established now a very long friendship and realize that they're just incredibly compatible in in all the other ways. And uh, yeah, it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting dynamic that connects those movies. Um, you wouldn't think of it on the surface, but. It's there. Several events happen that, that require Robbie and Julia to kind of deal with their emerging feelings for each other. One, Robbie goes to Julia's house he, after deciding he wants to declare his love for her, and he sees her in the window trying on her wedding dress. Uh, and he sees her. He assumes she's imagining herself getting married to Glenn, but in fact, she's pretending to that that she's marrying Robbie because she also realizes that Julia Giulia. <laughs> yes.
1: Julia Gulia is amazing. I mean, and and while it is a hilarious and stupid joke, <laughs> but it also is great because it is again there's no subtext in in this one, uh, but it is total text of like, oh, they're not right for each other. Yeah, <laughs> Julia Gulia, who could who could do it?
0: So he takes off and gets drunk, and eventually gets into a fist fight with Glenn. And that night, Robbie's former fiance returns and tries to get him back. And she stays at Robbie's place when he passes out drunk after the fight with Glenn. And while nothing happens, she answers the door in his Van Halen T-shirt the next morning when Julia comes over. And she, Julia, just, of course, assumes that they're back together. So she tells Glenn she wants to fly to Vegas and get married immediately, which is what Glenn wanted to do in the first place. After all, Rob... Everyone knows Las Vegas is the romance capital of the world.
1: Yeah, and, you know, if you, do you want to just get down there and have some fun gambling or just go straight, straight, to, the oh, straight to the wedding? But <laughs> also, a uh, little note, you know, we sometimes we like to help you out, uh, audience. And uh, I think what today's movies have taught me... Is that you should never answer the door pantsless if you are in <laughs> uh, you know in the early stages of romance because it's going to mess everything up. Yes, just trust no, me. No,
0: it's yeah. just it, it, things are going to get misconstrued. You know, when you've been married for for you know thirteen years, then then you could it's fine. It's not fine. Yeah, There's I mean ever they just, <laughs> they know the pants are in the wash at that yeah. point. Yes. <laughs> oh. So Robbie, he spurns his fiance's reconciliation. He wants nothing to do with it. And after you know, after the Rosie's fiftieth anniversary party, you know where he sees a couple who have like lived like a life together and grow old together. He realizes that that's who he wants. He wants to do with Julia, and he goes after her. Then I and I love this. The next flight uh, to Vegas. This this is
1: my favorite grand gesture in this whole amazing. series.
0: It's amazing. <laughs> Because he goes, he goes to, to to get to fly to Vegas, and the next flight, the only seat available is a first class seat. So he 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 goes and takes it, and you know he has this conversation where he he talks to the other first class passengers, including Billy Idol playing himself, and he gains their sympathy, and then the realization that he's actually on the same plane as Julia and Glenn, that they're in coach and he's in first class, and. They basically take over the plane and and use the loudspeaker because when you're a first-class passenger, you can do whatever you want. They use the loudspeaker. He serenades her over the loudspeaker with a song that he wrote, and it's amazing. And the whole first-class crew is coming
1: back to stop Glenn from intervening in this. Billy Idol comes up with a drink cart (laughs) to get get Glenn away. It's amazing. Um, I... And just, you know, look, I also lived through the 80s. To see Billy Idol in, in oh, as absolutely. full Billy Idol absolutely. helping out at the end of a romantic comedy, it just there is there anything better, Chris? I don't know.
0: I I love it. <laughs> they find out. I love they find out how like how they learn that Glenn and Julia are on the plane is that one of the 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 flight attendants comes back and says, "Oh, some passenger in, in in coach just asked me if I wanted to join the Mile High Club," and you know like you you know instantly it's Glenn
1: and there's the uh, they have the line of dialogue that he. He had told to Robbie yes. earlier about the the butt being what grade A prime, grade A
0: prime meat. Yeah,
1: it, 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 it's the same phrase. But I
0: love that that one of the other first class passengers says, "What's the Mile High Club?" And Billy Idol just smiles. <laughs> at it's yes, so good.
1: yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. No, this it's a really good movie. It's and again, it's it's you know I'm trying to think. It like it's like a Tootsie Roll pop of a movie where you have this this shell of you know, kind of this ridiculous Adam Sandler Sandler comedy, but at the core of it is something really sweet and genuine. And it's, it's, it's real interesting. It's, uh, you know, again, it was one of those ones I was like, well, I guess we need to cover this. Where do we fit it in? But I think it, it, it works great here because it's heading towards, you know, again, this is where romantic comedies don't end at the end of the nineties, but they do start to change. Yeah,
1: uh, absolutely. And it's, uh, it's interesting to me to see. And I think, you know, to, to a degree in all three of these movies, Unlike, say, the Batman series, where it felt like, you know, even though in a couple years you were going to get Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Sure. Spider-Man just felt like it was the start of something new. Yeah. Here, you can really just see the styles crossfading. It, there, it, there winds up being, I think, less of a distinct, oh, the, the old way just fell off a cliff because it had been done too much. And now right. we need to invent something completely new. It feels like more of a evolving, uh, yeah. just a constant evolving.
0: Absolutely. We move from New Jersey to Old Jersey, or at least to the not too far distant London for our second film today, Notting Hill. Anna Scott is the most famous actress on earth. Oh, she's
3: great. I have loved her. I love
0: her smile. I'd say she's the most beautiful woman on the planet. Will Thacker is the least successful shopkeeper in Notting Hill. Do you have any books by Dickens?
2: For a travel book shop. Uh, we only sell travel books. How about the new John Grisham thriller? That's a novel, too, isn't it? They're worlds apart. There's something wrong with this yogurt. It's mayonnaise. There we are, then. But only a moment away from destiny. Thanks. Pleasure. I don't think you'll believe who was just in here. Was it someone famous? Hi.
3: probably best not to tell anyone about this.
2: I'll tell myself sometimes, but don't worry, I won't believe it. There's this girl. But you absolutely mustn't tell anyone else, OK? It's
3: not Fergie,
2: is it? will spend all your money, make you suck at toes. Oh, my god. My flatmate. Hi.
3: Thank you,
2: god. You have a stunt bottom? I
3: could have
2: a stunt bottom. And what do you put on your passport? Profession, Mel Gibson's bottom?
3: Actually, Mel does his own ass work. Right. Rita Hayworth used to say men went to bed with a dream and they didn't like it when they woke up with reality. Do you feel that way? No, you don't. (laughs) Tomorrow, there'll be pictures of you in every newspaper from here to Timbuktu. Let's stay calm. No, you can't stay calm. Anytime I've tried anything normal, it's just been a disaster.
0: From the creators of four weddings and a funeral comes an unlikely romance.
2: Anna's a goddess. You know what happens to mortals who get involved with the gods.
0: Between two very different people.
3: The fame thing isn't really real, you know.
2: I live in Notting Hill. You live in Beverly Hills. Everyone in the world
0: knows who you are.
3: I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her.
0: In a place called Notting Hill. Notting Hill was written by Richard Curtis, who we discussed earlier in this series with his breakthrough film, Four Weddings and a Funeral. It was directed by Roger Mitchell, who had a long directing career in the UK, including the acclaimed 1995 adaptation of Jane Austen's Persuasion, which I remember Jen Howell mentioned a couple episodes as still the best adaptation of that novel. Yeah, The film reunites Curtis with four weddings and a funeral star Hugh Grant, who here plays London bookshop owner William Thacker. And cast opposite him is Julia Roberts in her third film in this series as Hollywood star Anna Scott. When the film opens, William is recovering from a divorce and living with a disheveled Welsh artist named Spike, who has the unfortunate habit of walking around with very few clothes. And one day, into his shop walks Anna Scott, one of the world's biggest film stars, played by one of the world's biggest film stars. And he sells her a book. She goes on her way. But a short time later, he runs into her again and accidentally dumps a full glass of orange juice on
1: her. Literally runs into her. Yes. Literally.
0: <laughs> literally runs into her. And with you know because he's a chivalrous guy, he invites her to his nearby flat to clean up. And there they... They make some nice, awkward, small talk. He tells her the encounter was surreal, but nice. And reads her reads her the entire contents of his refrigerator. He does, he does. Uh, it's, yes. it's a, I think it's a, it's a delightful and sweet scene. I really liked it. A, uh, a meet-cute if there ever were. Yes. Absolutely. This was the movie that I saw in the movie theater, but really hadn't seen since, and I liked it a lot. Um, a couple things right off the bat. First, when we were talking about When Harry and Sally, we discussed the idea of the idealization of city life. That Rob Reiner's film actually made New York City look like a place you want to live after decades of grittier, more dystopian portrayals. Well, we see that again here with London, specifically William's neighborhood of Notting Hill, which is cosmopolitan and fantastic. Like, who would not want to live in this little corner of the world? It reminds me of the area of London that, um, that, that. Ted Lasso takes place in. I'm like my wife and I watched Ted Lasso and we're like I want to live around the corner from that pub in Ted Lasso. It looks so great. I'll be I'll be an AC Richmond supporter for sure. Yeah, and it's funny because this is
1: a you know, a world of of London that I would have imagined doesn't exist just because it doesn't no. uh, in real life, but also, you know, and this will contrast with the movie that we're getting uh, to end it all. Yes. Here, everything still is Small and charming and, you know, capital hasn't taken over and started gentrifying and, like, big box storing. And I know they don't have big box stores in the same way, but, you know, chains and things. Money hasn't ruined the real estate's old world charm yet. And so because they want that contrast from the world that anna scott's coming from which is often uh unsurprisingly portrayed as very glam but perhaps very shallow and fake sure it's not as real as you know the notting hill neighborhood um yes you know if this was a u.s film you know you would probably instead of you would replace the class component that is here with a racial component in a US film.
0: In a US film, it would it wouldn't be set in, in the city. It would be Anna Scott would be filming in like a small town somewhere and, and the film would be there for a period of time and he would be a small town uh bookseller who yes. falls in love with the big Holly. It would be kind of Doc Hollywood meets state in Maine. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, you know, here it's 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 this quarter of London that is just uh, is just delightful, and Hugh Grant it, he's very good in this movie. He gives a performance not unlike the one he gave in Four Weddings and a Funeral. But hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And if they didn't have different names. Honestly, Notting Hill feels like it could almost be a sequel to that film picking up after Hugh Grant's character in that movie is inevitably left by Andy McDowell (laughs) because that was what is going to happen eventually. And then he, you know, in my head canon, you you know, he buys a bookstore, he changes his name and Andy McDowell leaves him and uh you know it, it, it's there's even a group of friends in this movie that is very similar to the quirky group of friends in in four weddings and a funeral and that his sister in this movie is kind of very yes. similar to the roommate and it's like oh th- this is this is the model uh one of those group of friends being by the way uh lord grantham a young lord oh, Grantham yes. from downton abbey
1: yeah and uh the other you know which you you've touched on but uh The other big character who's the same is the aloof, mysterious, beautiful, and most likely unavailable American woman to project all of your feelings onto who it will be a thunderstruck moment of love where it's just, you are told that it's love at first sight and you are just then asked to believe it. And look, and, and you do. It's yeah. fine, but it, it, this is the the, the opposite uh, way to go
0: with these things. But I, there's a, there's a component here of celebrity that also. That sort of yeah. builds into that that didn't that you didn't have in Four Weddings and a Funeral. She was it was just a pretty American girl. Here it's like, you know, if if Julia Roberts walked into you know a a, a store I was working when I would sort of be like, oh my god, as well. It's your classic, it's your classic
1: reverse pretty woman where she's got the upper end, uh, the upper hand in the balance of power. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs>
0: exactly. Exactly. It really is. It is a reverse Pretty Woman. I didn't think of that. That's, that is that uh, is that is fantastic. I got to say, I really think that Julia Roberts gives an extraordinary performance in this movie. Like last week, we discussed a film where she gave a very vibrant comic performance with a great deal of physical comedy. Here, you get something very different. Uh, and at times, she's like very quiet almost Sphinx-like, you don't know what's going on in her head. And it's a really interesting portrayal of someone who's led a very public life and has to be very guarded about what she says and how much she reveals to people on a moment-by-moment basis. And I think I think Julia Roberts does it incredibly well. And the contrast with her performance from My Best Friend's Wedding uh, is like, wow, she's a terrific actress. Yeah,
1: I mean, I would say that this is a good example of a performance that at times is extremely subtle but it is there versus there are times i i always (laughs) i call it pulling a vulcan (laughs) where sometimes there are roles where people just i will give nothing right and then you can project the depth onto me that's not what's happening here it's not giving you nothing it's just making you follow the breadcrumbs
0: yeah and 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 the film does an extraordinary job of creating these ups and downs for William as he tries to navigate this relationship with Anna. And it just feels like every time he gets a little bit, he makes a little bit of progress, there's a setback. So she invites him to her hotel. She calls him up. He doesn't get the message for a couple of days because Spike, who is a terrible roommate and a terrible, terrible roommate, um, doesn't give her the message. Doesn't give him the message for a couple days. But so he goes to the hotel and he finds himself in the middle of a press junket where he's mistaken for a journalist, which leads to one of my favorite jokes in the movie. When <laughs> yeah. he's asked what magazine he's there, and he sees an issue of Horse and Hound sitting on the table, and it's just a really good running joke, and gets a great callback near the end of the film. I also have to mention. Anna Scott is in London to promote the release of her sci-fi film Helix. Yes.
1: Which I would go see. I
0: would totally go see Helix.
1: And, you know, this movie came out in, what, 99?
0: 99. Yeah, it was late. It was uh, summer 99.
1: There, there might have been a sci-fi movie that ended in the letter X that also came out in the, the summer of 99. That's true. Or <laughs> I can't remember what that might be. Uh,
0: yeah. I, I and, and it's possible. I have a theory. She might have won the Oscar for Helix. I'll come back to uh, that later. Yeah. Anna Scott may have won in the fictional world. And
1: Helix, because the, the little bit that you see is does feel more that it's based on 2001 than Matrix. So yeah. it, it feels almost like they predicted Interstellar before Interstellar happened.
0: Yes, you know, she does have a conversation with William, and he invites her. She says, well, "Do you want to go out somewhere?" But he says, "Oh bugger, it's my sister's birthday. Uh, I have to go to the sister's birthday party." So she goes along with. And one of the best one of the highlights of the film.
1: Oh yeah, is for sure
0: is this the birthday party scene? Um, where each uh, each of the people in the group realize, like one at a time, that Williams brought one of the most famous people in the world, and it's just fantastic. Hugh Bonneville, uh, aka Lord Grantham in *Downton Abbey*, is like the last to realize it, and it's amazing. And this this
1: sequence I love because it's it's a this is a three stage rocket within the movie itself. Yes, where yes, it is. You they don't brush past and get straight to the oh she's charmed by the real people quote-unquote right right? they play the comedy of various people's reactions to her which by the way is a great way to not only get the comedy in but to tell us a little more about these characters who are secondary who we haven't had as much time with so it's revealing their character and to tell us more about her and how she responds to them yes and how amused she is or is not they even with the sister then go full on into the oh and this is the person who is going to kind of be uncomfortable about it all and you're like oh is this yeah. going to turn the worm then you get to the middle section where you get the heartfelt emotion stuff as people are going through who gets the brownies right they're all telling their woe about who gets the brownies the
0: brownie scene is fantastic yeah yeah there's this great scene where they each of them gives there's one piece of brownie left they all get to to tell who has the biggest sob story of their life gets the last piece of brownie and it is terrific
2: I'm going to give the last brownie as a prize to the saddest act here. Right. All right. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right, all right. Well, obviously, it's me, isn't it? I mean, I work in a city and a job I don't understand. And everyone keeps getting promoted above me. I haven't had a girlfriend since, well, since puberty. <laughs> and nobody fancies me. And if these cheeks get any chubbier, they never will. Nonsense.
3: <clears throat> I fancy you.
2: Really?
3: Yeah. Well, I did before you got so far. You,
2: go. you see? And unless I'm much mistaken, your job still pays you rather a lot of money, whilst Honey here earns twenty pence a week flogging her guts out in London's worst record store.
3: Yes. <laughs> and I haven't got hair. Mm. I've got feathers. And I've got funny goggly eyes. Mm-hmm. And I'm attracted to cruel men. And Actually, no one will marry me because um, my buzzes have actually started shrinking. Oh, you see, it's incredibly sad. Yeah, but on the other hand, her best friend is Anna Scott. Oh, well, mm. that's true. I can't deny it. I mean, she needs me. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> and most of her limbs work, whereas you know, I'm stuck in this thing day and night in a house full of ramps. Mm. And to add insult to serious injury, I've totally given up smoking, my favourite thing. And, um, well, the truth is. We can't have a baby, so lovely. So we're lucky in lots of ways, but surely that's worth a brownie.
2: <laughs> well, I don't know. Look at William. <laughs> Very unsuccessful professionally. That's true. Divorced. Used to be handsome. Now kind of. Squidgy around the edges. <laughs> <laughs> and absolutely certain never to hear from Anna again once she's heard that his nickname at school no. No. was no. Floppy.
3: <laughs> you did. I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Thanks very much. Thank you. All right. Well, at least I get the last brownie, right? I think so. I think you
3: get it. Well, wait. What about me?
2: I'm sorry. You think you deserve the brandy? <laughs>
3: Well, a shot at it, at least,
2: huh? Well, you'll have to prove it. I mean, this is a very, very good brownie, and uh, I'm going to fight for it.
3: I've been on a diet every day since I was 19, which basically means I've been hungry for a decade. Um, (laughs) I've had a series of not nice boyfriends, one of whom hit me. Uh, And every time I get my heart broken, the newspapers splash it about as though it's entertainment. (laughs) And... It's taken two rather painful um, operations to get me looking like this. Really? Mm -hmm. Really. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And one day, not long from now, my looks will go. They will discover I can't act. And I will become some sad middle-aged woman who looks a bit like someone who was famous for a while. No, nice try,
1: gorgeous, but you don't fault anyone. <laughs> yeah. Pathetic effort to hog the ground. And then after that, which is wonderful in a way to, you know, yeah. it, it's yet another stage. Then when she leaves, you get that third and final stage, much shorter, where you get the aftermath with him and his friends about what what did all of this just mean. Where you yeah. you start to get how it really what it really meant to him, again this is a point where I do want to bring it up because we brought it up with four weddings. Sure. You know, and I think it's the, you know, I think it's because of the, the, the British nature and origin of this movie. It is not quite in the American mold in that we never get to see what it meant to Anna Scott in the wake of this. You really are, it is his world and she's just living in it. Yeah. Not that she doesn't get a real part. Not that we don't get her internal life. We just did in the Brownie bit. Right. We got a lot of her internal world, but it just doesn't have the same balance, I think, as the American movies.
0: No, but because she is she is from the outside of this world. Yeah, she is Jeff Bridges in Starman, and you know Hugh Grant is the Karen Allen character. He is of this place, and she is the is the the element from outside that might as well be from another planet. Yeah, uh, and afterwards, after that scene, they go for the, a walk uh, in a private park. I guess they have these things in London where it's. The, a private park that if you live around the perimeter you get a key and you can go in but other people can't and that's it's A that seems incredibly British well we have it here they're just called golf courses well yes yeah that's true yeah <laughs> Yeah. Anna's like, well, I'm just going in. She climbs over the fence with ease because she's, you know, had, you know, stunt training and is in good shape because, you know, of, of the things she has. He struggles to get over the fence, which is hysterical. And there's a really interesting moment where they 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 notice a bench that was placed in memory of a wife by her her husband of many years uh after she passed away, because they they love to sit there and he dedicates the bench to her. And uh it's it's just a nice both the first and second movie here have this theme of someone to grow old with. Yeah. You know, and then after this scene, of course, again, in that that the context of he, he makes progress in his relationship and then he gets knocked back a bit. He goes to the hotel room where, much to both of their surprising And mine. And <laughs> mine, her movie star boyfriend is there, who William didn't even know existed, and it is a great cameo from alec baldwin who plays the part with just the right amount of smug arrogance without being a com- like he's not a heel no he's not a heel it's it, or not a complete heel well yeah. up to the very end yeah because like it, he he mistakes william for the the room service waiter and so there's something about the way he says stuff that's a little has got a little arrogance there's nothing that he asks William to do like, again, he genuinely thinks this guy's from room service and the things he asks the guy to do are nothing ridiculous. Can you, can you get me a club sandwich and empty the wastebasket? And he says, adios the dishes, which is kind of a douchey thing to say. But at the same time, if, if this guy was the, the room service guy asking him to remove a tray of, 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 dirty dishes is not an unreasonable request. Yeah, He
1: tips well, but there is the, the, I know what you're getting to.
0: It's not like, oh, he's treating the guy like a, it's not like, you know, he's, you know, throwing a tray at him or like there's even one point where like Anna says, I don't think that's his job. He's like, Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize, you know, and then he's like, no, and William's like, No, that's fine. But then at the very end, after he says to he says, you know, you know, when she's ordering something for for food, he's like, Yeah, she says, Oh, she says she doesn't want anything. He's like, Well, that's good. I don't want people to say who's that actor with the fat girlfriend. And that's where he becomes a complete dickbag. Yeah. In the context of her.
1: And and it also ties into the very tip of what she said in the brownie scene. Yes. When she was talking about she hasn't been able to, she's been on a diet for whatever. For 10 years or, years or whatever. Yeah. She's had,
0: you know, and, and and some very not very nice boyfriends. Yes. And you're like, oh, yeah. I see this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and William leaves after that. He does not see Anna again. Instead, his friends set him up on a series of blind dates, which start out terrible, but get progressively better. Yeah and and ironically enough the the last girl who is very nice and very pretty she played one of jack donaghy's girlfriends on 30 rock which is hysterical no way yeah yeah wow and yeah. you know the 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 thing is she's not anna scott never meet your 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 silver screen idols i'll tell you that <laughs> yes i've i don't think i've fallen in love with any uh thankfully <laughs> yes <laughs> but Anna returns some months later as after a London tabloid publishes nude photos of her taken earlier in a career and with nowhere else to turn, she seeks out William and he gives her sanctuary in his house and sort of their relationship rekindles at this point.
1: Ah, yes, but it has to go wrong somehow. And it will because of Spike, the dumb roommate.
0: Spike, the dumb roommate. And
1: and this is where, just to bring this up again, while they're, there are internal emotions, especially with William, that most of the big conflict in this movie does seem to be external. Yes. and this what we're getting into is uh, you know perhaps the, the best example of it in the film, although her having the secret boyfriend earlier was another example of it.
0: Well, what happens is that Spike, you know, goes down to the pub. He, You know, at this point, Spike knows that Anna Scott is there, but, you know, and he goes down the pub and he lets it slip that Anna Scott is there. And all of a sudden, the paparazzi, the London tabloids show up in full force at his door, at William's door. They see William, like, goes out to pick up the paper. He's He's again not wearing pants because that's a, it's a big problem. Yeah, yeah, it's a problem, and they get pictures of him.
1: And my favorite part about this, though, yeah, my favorite part is that he's inside, and there's just like ding dong or buzz, whatever the <laughs> right, and you're just like, oh, someone's at the door. Quiet, you can't hear a dang thing, and then and then when you open the door, it's like, oh, there's an entire small it's city of journalists, company. and it's yeah, you are hit with. <laughs> all of the the sound of the world.
0: I'm like, you didn't hear that from the other side of the door. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, oh,
1: maybe this is a little more wedding singer
0: than you would think. Uh. You know, Anna feels betrayed and she lets William have it with both barrels. And honestly, she's not wrong because all of her, first of all, she's, she's right. It was Spike who, you know, Spike did it inadvertently as opposed to I'm going to sell this to the tabloids, but she's not wrong. And from her point of view, given her experiences, Her anger is justified. Now, William's response is also justified. Yeah. And it makes it interesting in that they're sort of both in the right. They are, although
1: while William might be right about the circumstances of this will blow over eventually, you know, on one level, he is telling her, you shouldn't feel the way that you feel. Right. And that is not, it's perhaps the one thing in this whole movie that you go, "Oh, he's he's not so great in this moment."
0: No, I agree. I mean, you know, and considering that she's just had, you know, like nude photos of her published in a tabloid and he's kind of like, "Don't worry about it." And, I, and it's like, it, "No, man." And I know that Spike didn't intentionally give away Anna's location, but honestly, if I was William, I would probably have thrown him out.
1: Yeah. Of a window. You wouldn't have made it where you needed to make it at the end of the movie because you...
0: I know. In my version of this, Spike is dead after this. Break. Yeah. I threw him out a window and, oh yeah, sorry, terrible accident. And and the whole movie ends in
1: heartbreak because sometimes the whole world could hinge on Bilbo's. <laughs> Bowe's... <laughs> oh, oh my God, mercy, <laughs> oh, pity, whatever.
0: <laughs> yeah, the... the... Yes. Yes. All of that is, <laughs> yes. The, the whole Lord of the Rings, you know, is hinges on Bilbo's mercy. All of this hinges on on uh, Spike being a complete and utter idiot. <laughs> but sometimes you need the idiot to say the thing that all your polite, you know, smart friends won't say. Yeah. So it's, it's we're getting ahead of ourselves. so Anna leaves and you get this fantastic, montage of the passage of time like i i love that scene where the seasons pass by oh it's i'm i'm
1: gonna go that because the main part of it isn't a montage you're right i wanted to call this out because it is so technically beautiful it is a single tracking shot yes. you know on dolly whatever where he's walking through nodding the streets of Notting hill except they have set those streets up to be the different seasons. And so they are like fading into each other where Yeah,
0: and you you watch the seasons change yeah, around him. He gets his jacket
1: on because it's raining and then he keeps walking. Yeah. And then, you know, now it's getting to blustery with with snow on the ground. And you're just walking through, and I don't know, what's maybe a 30-second shot, maybe less. But it is, I don't know. It's
0: know—it's—it's really good. It is a really yeah. good piece of filmmaking.
1: Yeah, it's really... People talk about how, oh, when you're directing, you shouldn't have a shot that stands out because it'll take people out of the movie and it's blah, blah, blah. When it's this cool I, I'm i like yeah and it's a passage oh, of agree. time
0: moment like there's nothing exactly. to take me out of here you're moving me along right it's just a way to illustrate the passage yeah. of time and it does return it is, that's not the end of the movie but time has elapsed and the following spring William learns that Anna is back in London making a new film an adaptation of a Henry James novel which William had suggested she should do and also has recently won an Oscar I presume for Helix <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) because the the submarine movie that she's getting ready to shoot was getting ready to shoot like late summer, early fall. There's no way you were going to have that out before the end of the year for Oscar consideration. So unless there's some other Anna Scott movie that came out in late of that year, it's got to be Helix. But upon learning that Anna's in London, he makes an unannounced visit to the set. And while Anna waves him through, he later overhears her dismissing him to another actor over the headphones, and he leaves. But she comes to the shop and she explains that the actor was a gossip. She didn't want to acknowledge anything that he said uh, and apologizes for leaving. And she gives him it, it in the scene where they, they were at his house. He has a print of a Chagall painting. She gives him the real Chagall <laughs> painting that she, she had in her house in London, just, in, in New York, just to illustrate the difference of the worlds that they live in.
1: And also, uh, you know, she is giving it as a... Um... You know, uh, I'm sorry gift and uh, expression because this is also this
0: is the I'm a girl scene, right?
1: Yep. I'm just
0: a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her.
1: And it really is just such a a great moment where everything stops and it's just these two people in a room. There's no there's no ruckus around them and it doesn't work here. Right. He has been so wounded and so shell shocked that he he says no he says no because uh, essentially he says when it inevitably doesn't work out it'll be too painful so i just want to end it now
0: which i mean it's a stupid thing to say because honestly that could be true of any relationship anytime you you put yourself out there you take a risk well chris you you would have wanted him to say it at the end of four weddings <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. All right. Yeah. But that was, but but that was because the the, Kristen Scott Thomas had already put herself out there and he should have said, yes, he just said, here, you don't have a competing, you know, there's not really a competing option where it's like, it's not, you know, his, his other friend who's, you know, she's, she's already married. It's not, it's not uh." William, thankfully with the help of spike who in my version would have been dead at this point. Yeah, you know, all of his friends say, you know, did you, did I do the right thing? He's like, did I do the right thing? And all of his friends say, "Oh yes, of course you did because they're all polite and English." Except for Spike, the Welshman, he's like, "No, you're a bloody idiot." And you know what? He is a bloody idiot, which leads to the grand gesture drive through London, um, you know, a frantic drive through London to get to the the a hotel where the press conference is being held and He's able to get in and 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 he asks, you know, she's she's asked by one of the reporters when is she leaving London? She says, immediately after this this press conference. And uh, you know, William's able, if 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 there was somebody who you wanted to stay for, would you consider staying? And she says, Well, I I I would stay indefinitely. And you know, then, of course, he, there's the horse and hound callback, which is my favorite. <laughs> I love the horse and yes. hound stuff. And in the final scene, we see that William and Anna have integrated their lives. Uh, he attends a movie premiere with her. And in the final shot, we see them relaxing together on the bench in the private park. Presumably, she must have bought one of those houses around the perimeter. I like to think
1: that they just keep breaking in and smashing the class system in England. That's, that's <laughs> my dream.
0: <laughs> uh, what I didn't notice when I saw this movie in the movie theater back in 99 is that in the final shot, Anna is pregnant. She's she's got a little little baby bump. Oh,
1: I I can't see Chris. Uh, apparently, I only listen to movies.
0: <laughs> I didn't either. It's hysterical. Like, was this your first time yeah, seeing this? This is movie? Actually was actually
1: the this... one of the three today. I'd never seen Notting Hill. Yeah.
0: So, when I saw this for the first time, admittedly, like twenty plus years ago, I didn't notice that at all either. And then this time, I'm watching it, and my wife says, "Is she pregnant?" I'm like, I rewound it. I was like, so I didn't even notice it this time until my wife pointed it out, and I was like. Oh, so they're that that's so they're gonna they're gonna start a family. So it's I like this movie a lot. I it, it's 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 charming. It's I, I like it. I think more than four weddings in a funeral. You know, it's uh it, it's it's just again I think that Julia Roberts has has got some of the most varied performances of any actor in, in this series. You know, from Pretty Woman to to My Best Friend's Wedding to this, I think you have three very different performances. All of them very good. Yeah, cool. it's true.
1: The the thing that I would say is that for me, Hugh Grant while it is akin to the four weddings uh it does feel different it feels more grounded here right it's a very funny movie but it feels like it's, it is leaning more on the dramatic romantic side whereas four weddings did feel like it was it had a little bit more on the comedic side and i think that was in his performance as well
0: well of course it's more grounded he he was shattered when andy mcdowell <laughs> left him and he had to change yeah, his name I guess so change his name and all <laughs> of his friends yes They're very similar to a set of friends. Oh, yeah. Our third film today is also set in a major city and also revolves around a bookstore. This is You've Got Mail.
3: I turn on my computer. I go online. Welcome. Welcome. And my breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You've You've Got got mail. Mail. What is going on with you? Is it infidelity if you're involved with someone on email?
2: This woman is the most adorable creature I've ever been in contact with.
3: Have you had sex? Of course not. I don't even know mm, I mean cyber sex. No. Well, no, don't do it. Because the minute you do, they lose all respect for you.
2: In a city where everyone's looking for someone, Joe and Kathleen have discovered the best way to meet someone. Is to never meet at all.
3: We just email. It's really nothing. I don't know his name or what he does look, 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 look. or where he lives exactly. What? couldn't possibly be the rooftop killer.
2: What they don't realize...
3: What is that? What are you doing? You're taking all the caviar? That caviar is a garnish.
2: ...as <laughs> they already have. Just Joe Fox, I'm in the book business. I am in the book business.
3: What should I have said? I'm a man who has made my professional life in misery. Tell me something, really. How do you sleep at night?
2: Fight. Fight to the death. In life, they're at odds. She's beautiful, but... She's a pill.
3: Online, they're in love.
2: Do you think we should meet?
3: Meet? Oh my god.
2: I'm gonna say hello, I'm gonna have a cup of coffee, and then I'm gonna split. That's what I'm gonna do. Why am I even doing this?
1: Why am I compelled to even meet her? Relax.
2: You're just taking it to the next level. Oh. And I'm not gonna stay that long anyway. I already said that, didn't I? Yes, you did.
1: No!
3: I mean, he could be the next person to walk into the store. He could be... I'm if your still strong. May I please come up? No, I don't really think that that is a good idea because... I have a terrible... cold. <laughs> Here I am.
0: You've Got Mail is our third film in this series from Nora Ephron, who previously wrote When Harry Met Sally and co-wrote and directed Sleepless in Seattle. And it feels like a great bookend to this series, which we started with When Harry Met Sally. And Ephron is once again in the director's chair here for You've Got Mail, as well as writing the script with her sister Delia. And once again starring is Meg Ryan, along with Tom Hanks from Sleepless in Seattle. Uh, This is our fourth Meg Ryan movie in this series. She is obviously... You know, she's obviously the all-timer. She's up there on our actor leaderboards at this point. Oh yeah, she's it's it's her and Ernie Hudson are. Well, uh, up there because he had three here plus Lone Star. Coleman's up there now. Yep. Yes. Monroe. And Carolyn Monroe is obviously you know will always be up there. Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, uh, this time joined by Greg Kinnear, Parker Posey, Gene Stapleton, Dave Chappelle, Steve Zahn, and Dabney Coleman. You've Got Mail is a remake of the 1940 comedy, The Shop Around the Corner, starring Jimmy Stewart and Margaret Sullivan, itself based on a Hungarian play from 1937 entitled Parfumery. I hope I got that right. Of all the films we've talked about in this series, I think this is the one I've seen the most. Due to it's, you know, I saw it in the movie theater, but it was ubiquitous on cable in the 2000s. Like you'd, TNT would always be running "You've Got Mail." It tells the story of Joe Fox and Kathleen Kelly. He is the third generation of the Fox family to run Fox Books, a Barnes and Noble esque super bookstore, and she owns the shop around the corner a children's bookstore institution on the Upper West Side of Manhattan that happens to be around the corner from a brand new Fox Books. I think the first thing we should talk about before we get into anything else, we have reached the uber depiction of city life that began with When Harry Met Sally sort of reaches its its zenith in this movie with the platonic ideal of New York City, except there's something wrong. Yes. Yeah, it's like, it's... The Upper West Side of Manhattan in this movie, it's like it's it's amazing. It's there's magic around every corner. There's flour from bakeries floating through the air in the wee hours of the morning. But at the same time, gentrification is starting to creep in. And that is a lot of what this movie is about.
1: Yeah, because you have for me a push and a pull between the main storyline of the romance right yep well look we're, we're we're again we deal in spoilers it's so interesting that the romantic storyline ends in a happy ending right yeah and yet they kind of
0: <laughs> the business aspect
1: of it <laughs> like does not what they're saying about the city and the direction of of you know new york city and really just american life in general i would say and the economics of american life in general this film is dark
0: (laughs) and yeah
1: oh my goodness and
0: and coming at the end of the 20th century as we as you turn the corner into the 21st century it's like oh It's all going to be Fox Books, and they're not wrong. And 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 Fox Books will eventually get hollowed out by Amazon. There's a sequel that never got made, which deals with their kids, and you know somebody's got a romance on Twitter, and at the same time, there's an Amazon that's taking down Fox Books, and people are nostalgic for that. It's so weird. Anyway, we should we should what what neither Joe nor Kathleen realize is that they have been communicating with each other via email. Uh, After meeting in an over 30 chat room, he is NY152 and she is shop girl. Now the internet was so new at this time, Rob, that Kathleen Kelly could just have the internet handle shop girl without a string of 85 numbers attached behind it.
1: And I uh, just as a, like a slight breakout point, because I hadn't seen it in forever. The part of this movie in the early part where you're seeing how they log on and like what oh, yeah. what an AOL chat room is like. I have to say this is some of the most realistic depiction of internet life at that time. Yes. It is it is almost documentary like where I'm like, "Oh, this is not gussied up at all." This is just what you did and i'm like it's a great little time capsule
0: yeah you have that aol dial-up noise that is so sort of it's such an integral part of the fu- i mean it's almost quaint like it, it almost feels positively genteel yes. compared to like the social media cacophony that we have today where we're all carrying smartphones and twitter stuff happens in in nanoseconds and it's it's fascinating. It's, it's a fascinating picture of sort of the very end of sort of the 20th century reaching almost its peak. But now the, the cracks in the foundation are being are, are, are you could see in, in this uh, in this film. I want to mention that Joe and Kathleen, when the movie begins, are both in relationships with other people. Joe with the self-centered and overstimulated Patricia, played by Parker Posey, and Kathleen with the esoteric left-wing columnist Frank, played by Greg Kinnear. I love the description of Patricia where he says about her, She makes coffee nervous that's such a great it is i struggle with character when i'm writing a script i struggle with uh like character descriptions that one is perfect you know everything about her she makes coffee nervous and i think on parker Posey's, i think it's her imdb
1: page there's a quote from some press that she did where she said that uh she was always playing the girl who was annoying who made you realize you wanted to be with the other Ah. girl. And I think that that is a hundred percent, at least (laughs) referencing this role,
0: if nothing else. Oh, I think it is. But what's interesting. She's not, I, I, I still like her. What's interesting about this movie is the cast. It's not just the two leads. It doesn't just, just balance on the two leads. The whole cast is delightful. All of them. So it's like these roles that might with in other, in other actors, hands might be annoying aren't because I like Parker Posey and I like Greg Kinnear and they are just, uh, they're all great. And I kind of, you know, like I otherwise might dislike her, but she's great.
1: I mean, look, it's Parker Posey in the nineties. I'm not going to dislike her (laughs) in in a movie. I frankly, even in, in, um, oh my God, Dazed and Confused. She's kind of like adorably terrible.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Kathleen runs the shop around the corner with a small group of loyal employees. Uh, And I want to mention, it's interesting, she inherited the store from her mother. And I think it's interesting that both Joe and Kathleen inherited their businesses. I don't know what that means, but I feel like it means something.
1: Yeah, but their family values are very different, right? Yes. One is the... Get bigger, gobble devour, and the other is, you know, keep this nugget of personal interaction. Yes.
0: Absolutely. I also find it interesting that in a movie with dial up internet, the most dated thing is the line where Kathleen's employee Christina is worried that if the store closes, she'll have to move to Brooklyn. Yes.
1: Well, there there's something else that's dated about this, I think in a huge way, but it's a stealth dating. Cause this and this is actually goes to the core of the whole damn story. This is a movie where the two leads who are falling in love in the real world are trapped in their real-world preconceived notions of each other, right? Totally. Although I would argue they're they're not just preconceived. There's interactions. Notions, there's real yeah. stuff happening. It's only online where they're completely different online persona where they can be their real true selves that matter more. They're better selves than they are in the real world, and that who you are online is more noble and better and matters more than who you are in the real world. That is the most dated message.
0: You're 100% right. You could
1: not. 100%. I'm not saying it's wrong for the time necessarily, but like you would never, ever make a movie with that is a through line at this point.
0: I mean do you know anybody whose online self is is a better person than their real worlds? So no one And more authentic and down to earth. <laughs> I and look,
1: you know the two of you who are out there that that is true for just know you're the exception. Yes. Yes.
0: So after he, uh, Tom Hanks, you know, he's got, his father has been married several times and his grandfather has been married. So so like he, he spends a day with his aunt who is age 11 and his half brother who is age four. And he takes the kids, uh, you know, to the shop around the corner to hear Kathleen's story hour. And he buys an armload of books, but, Knows that he's effectively her business rival and is likely to put her out of business, so he doesn't tell her who he is, just call me Joe. Yes, but the kid's still trying to spell his last F O X. But there's a moment I want to mention this there's a moment where he catches the balloon in the door on the way out because he's got all the stuff that they've gotten at like the fair. Because at this point, the Upper West Side is just a you know, a Narnia esque. Fantasy world where it's all face painting and 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 goldfish, and he catches the blue in the door. It was unscripted, as was Hank's line. Good thing it wasn't the fish. Ah, uh, some
1: of the little little moments catching Absolutely. magic because uh, it, it feels very off the cuff. Yeah,
0: yeah. Not long after that meeting, they encounter each other again at a publishing industry party, and this time his identity is revealed, and the encounter goes south very very quick
1: and it's uh and at this point they they still do not real neither one of them realizes that they are their secret like emotional pen pal love right
0: right and it's fascinating because at the same time like she starts to she's like I'm going to take on the big bad Fox books shop girl is asking NY 152 for advice on how to save her business and of course he tells her go to the mattresses it's from the godfather Rob I know that because
1: I (laughs) am in this movie. All men know the Godfather.
0: And they, it's true. It is. It's the (laughs) I Ching. It is the source of all wisdom Uh, to this day. I don't do an impression of studio boss Waltz finding a horse's head in his bed. I do an impression of Tom Hanks doing an impression of Waltz finding a horse's head in his bed. Ah, 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 like that's, yeah, it's it's just it's all become part of the collective culture. It's just it's fantastic. Like, the, the, I really like this movie, despite its very dark undercurrents.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that it is uh, in the moment, most of the moments. It does feel like just a great romance. And they they are star crossed for very good reasons yes. in this movie. They are star crossed in a modern context where modern life has put them at odds And so they can't realize what's going on and what's happening that underneath they they truly are compatible where the movie winds up. I think you wind up with a very mixed message about what that means, because I think the conclusion of the A story did not really take into account the conclusion of the B story in totality. Yeah.
0: How is she going to feel about the fact that, uh, you know, this guy did put him out of, you know, put her out of business like that's how's that going to affect their relationship 10 years down the line?
1: Yeah. And there's a little bit of the are you are you saying something that you didn't mean to say about, you know, progress and conquest, because I mean, from one from one vantage point at the end of the day, Joe conquered her her and her business and he just gets the spoils. I mean, the movie doesn't, that's not the tone of the movie, but I mean, it's what happens. no, No, you know,
0: (laughs) know, I mean, uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, if, if... Oh, Oh man, I didn't think about it that way. That's a,
1: yeah. It's dark. I know it's dark. (laughs) I'm I'm a dark person. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Finally, NY152 and Shop Girl decide to meet and they arrange a time and place. And she'll have a book with her with a rose so he knows it's her. But as Joe arrives with his friend, played by Dave Chappelle, he learns that Shop Girl is indeed Kathleen Kelly. And there's a moment here I want to point out where 90s Tom Hanks channels 80s Tom Hanks because he asks her, Oh, yeah, he has a look, has Dave Chappelle look in the window, Is she pretty? And he's like, Oh, she's pretty. And she's like, She had to be. Yeah, dude. I'm like, that's straight out of the money pit. Like, that's that's volunteers right there. Like (laughs) the man with one red shoe. He sees that Kathleen Kelly is shop girl, and Joe decides not to go in. At least not as NY 152. He goes in as Joe. You know, the 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 guy who's going to put her out of business. And and once again, the conversation turns sour. Kathleen
2: Kelly. Hello. This is a coincidence. Would you mind if I sat that? Yes.
3: Yes, I would, actually. I'm expecting someone. Thanks.
2: Pride and Prejudice. Yes. Do you mind? I bet you read that book every year. I bet you just love that Mr. Darcy. And your sentimental heart just beats wildly at the thought that he and, um, well, you know, whatever her name is, are truly, honestly going to end up together. Can I get you something?
3: No, no, he's not staying.
2: Chino, decaf, non
3: No, no, you are not staying.
2: I'll just stay here until your friend gets here. Gee, is he late?
3: The heroine of Pride and Prejudice is Elizabeth Bennet. She is one of the greatest and most complex characters ever written, not that you would know.
2: As a matter of fact, I've read it.
3: Oh, well, good for you.
2: I think you'd discover a lot of things if you really knew me.
3: If I really knew you, I know what I would find. Instead of a brain, a cash register, instead of a heart, a bottom line. What? I just had a breakthrough. What is it? I have you to thank for it for the first time in my life. When confronted with a horrible, insensitive person, I knew exactly what I wanted to say, and I said it.
2: Well I think you have a gift for it. It was a perfect blend of poetry and meanness.
3: Meanness? Let me tell you something about meanness. Don't
2: misunderstand me, I'm just trying to pay you a compliment.
0: Now, I want to take a quick detour for a moment and talk about the film that You've Got Mail is a remake of, The Shop Around the Corner from 1940. Now I went and did a little unscheduled extra credit homework and I watched The Shop Around the Corner because it was in the, on the DVD that was included in the Blu-ray that I had. And I got to say, first of all, Shop Around the Corner is terrific. I'd never seen it before. Jimmy Stewart, Margaret Sullivan, uh, as well as uh, The Wizard from The Wizard of Oz is the guy who owns- Oh, no way. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, well, I guess he was under contract at MGM. It was an MGM film. And the film is set in a leather goods store where two co-workers who don't care for each other uh, are unbeknownst to them exchanging letters. And it's terrific. And it actually increased my appreciation of You've Got Mail. It illustrates how great of a remake You've Got Mail is. Like I reject the notion that all remakes are bad or derivative. Uh, they're often done for the wrong reasons of name, you know, brand recognition or name recognition, rather than an interesting and new spin on an existing piece of material, which is what this is. Cause this I, I think this is like it, it it was like, wow, I really liked you've got mail before. I liked it even more seeing what they did with the original material of Shop Around the Corner. And in both versions of the story, again, both versions are quite different, but there's one scene that is almost identical, and that's the scene in the cafe. Mm. There's a scene where Jimmy Stewart goes to the cafe and he sees that it's Margaret Sullivan, and you know, you know and he goes in but doesn't say who he is, and it changes the, the film from that point forward. And they even use some of the same dialogue. That great line about the perfect blend of poetry and meanness is in both films okay so it, it i just wanted to say as, as a little a little aside into the shop around the corner which i'd never seen before and i think is terrific as well i i have still not seen it because i'm a c student <laughs> no extra credit for me
1: <laughs>
0: i we just were like i would never see we should watch it you know we so we threw it in and uh it was not on the assigned reading let's it, it was admittedly it was my own it was my own i know but shouldn't i do more than what i'm told to <laughs> You know, if I really cared. <laughs> Later, when NY152 reemerges online and tries to explain why he didn't show up, at least Kathleen didn't think he showed up, Joe chooses his words very carefully. He actually doesn't say that he wasn't there because that would be a lie. It's a real interesting to watch him sort of mm-hmm. thread that needle. But in the end, Kathleen is forced to close the shop because capitalism happens, Rob whether we like it or not. Yeah, I know. Uh, and she goes over this one scene where she goes, I love where she goes over to this children's section of Fox books and you get a super young Christmas cena as one of the Fox books employee trying to help the customer. And what's
1: interesting about that little bit here. And this divorce from all of the really dark stuff that I was talking about is that when she goes there, you can tell it's the first time she's been in that store. Yep. Right. She, she's refused to go. And she's looking around, and you can see on her face, and you know, or at least I'm projecting it. But I think Meg Ryan does does a great job in this particular scene. In particular, is that she's like, "Hey, this is a pretty great bookstore. Like, you know, like it's not it's not just the way the people who are running it are soulless and corporate about it, but Joe is less so about like his than his his is, father yeah, and grandfather." grandfather. He this is a man who does love books and he's created a great bookstore. Now it's a monster that is stomping out and has stomped out her bookstore, but it's not uh you know, it's not a terrible soulless bookstore. No. Um it's d- very different and you're not going to get the personal uh touches. Uh they although they try to recreate them. Yeah. And and that's shown with her helping the person that uh you know, the employee yeah. can't Help to find the book that they're looking well, for. She
0: knows the the Noel Stretfield wrote the shoe books, uh, ballet shoes yeah, and theater yeah. shoes. And I gotta say, I spent a lot of time immediately post college. Like my go to um, like day job while I was doing I was I was doing theater and 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 other things. My go to day job was working in bookstores. I, I've worked for both Barnes and Noble. I've worked for Borders at various times. Uh, and, and again, while I think the people at the top had no idea what they were doing, the people who were in the store, were, you know, were good people who liked what they do, did, or at least at the time, again, Borders has gone out of business. And I'll tell you, I remember being in a meeting, at a, like a regional meeting. Where the Borders people were, this was about 2003, 2004, where Borders are saying, we're really going to go all in on CDs. Oh, boy. We really think CDs are the future of, of our business. We're going all in on music on CD. They said that. Wah, 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 wah. Both Joe and Kathleen realize their relationships aren't working. Joe, after a night stuck in the elevator, and Kathleen, after Frank breaks up with her. Uh, Frank had appeared on a, on a local talk show, uh, trying to save the shop around the corner, had made a connection with the host. Uh, that's another thing I quote all oh, to thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Um, and and he, he 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 hooks up with uh, uh, Niles' second wife from Fraser. Oh yeah. And it's interesting because it's very it's very similar to the scene in Sleepless in Seattle because there's no rancor between the two. Like, they both know the relationship is not what it should be. And she's got that great line, you know, he, he asks her if there's someone else. And she says, it's not, there isn't someone else, but there's the dream mm-hmm. of someone else. And it's an interesting, uh, you know, it's an interesting line. I, I also mentioned that Parker Posey, it's a subtle thing. They're trapped in the elevator for a long period of time and you don't actually see it happen, but when they cut away, you know, and they come back and she's blowing on her nails. She clearly painted her nails in the elevator while they were stuck. That's madness. <laughs> like you want to illustrate how self-centered a character is. That's a great <laughs> She painted her nails in the stuck elevator.
1: It's just an efficient use of time. It's New York. People are busy, man. <laughs>
0: Joe moves on to his boat, which is docked right next to his father, who's also had a recent breakup. And in talking to his father, Joe says how it isn't easy to find that one single person in the world who fills your heart with joy. And the father replies, played by Dabney Coleman, who's great. Don't be ridiculous. Have I ever been with anybody who fits that description? Have you? And that moment, Joe realizes the person who fills his heart with joy is Shop Girl. Maybe it's Kathleen Kelly, but it's definitely Shopgirl. So the third act is all about Joe trying to win Kathleen over, despite the fact he put her out of business. And it works. At least it I think it works. You know, it's—it's it's, it, yeah. even though he essentially crafts a small scale and somewhat manipulative version of when Harry met Sally in the third act, where he becomes her friend. Yeah. And by the end, where Kathleen is going to meet NY 152 one, one more time, she's reached the point where she hopes it'll be Joe. Yeah. And... I mean, again, for all the darkness of this movie, when he comes around the corner in that park with the dog, uh, uh, it, it got me.
1: Yeah, well, you know, and there is, uh, I always, this is a, a a little pet project of mine that I always love to identify things in stories where you go, oh, this is a writer fetishizing writing. <laughs> and, uh, and it's subtle in this one, but it is, uh, you know, what you write is more important than anything else and if you're if you connect with someone else's writing you have connected with them which by the way is 100% untrue <laughs> in real life but um and, and, hey, and we say that you know, as
0: writers I, both of us are writers and yes. and it is 100% true <laughs>
1: Yes. I, yes. I mean, uh, anyway, but, uh, you go and you're like, yeah, I mean, I I get it. And, and look, you know, there are, there are truths that you can put on the page. And I guess if you are talking with someone else and it is, it is not a unmeaningful connection.
0: Absolutely. I wanted this movie to be the last one we covered in the series because I just, I really felt like it feels like a bookend to when Harry met Sally and, and obviously romantic comedies you know, uh, as as a film genre, go back far earlier than 1989 and continue onward into the future to the present day. But it feels like this period of the 90s has a particular tone and flavor, and *You've Got Mail* seems to mark the end of that era in a way that it also marked the end of an era for a certain kind of American commerce of of, of <laughs> small stores, as uh, as the shop around the corner you know, it gives way to the Fox books and the end of human
1: culture. Apparently yes, we are now, yes, where it's just the, the robots and the AI uh, and now everyone dresses pretty similarly from decade to decade. Uh, Yeah. It's so weird. Like uh, music has stopped evolving. It's just digital pop and digital hip hop music where, there, uh, look, I'm going to just, you're going to cut this. I'm, I'm gonna not going to cut anyway. this. I'm going to um, <laughs> leave it. I'm leaving it. <laughs> hip hop in particular, and I'm no scholar on it, but in, but in the digital pop music as well, there was a time uh, where hip hop, you could go, oh yeah, like it evolved from the 80s sound into like 90s. And you're like, oh yeah, you're going from, you know, the message to NWA. You're going from Dre and his beats to like the Wu-Tang and, and then Pharrell. And like you had, and, and it, it usually co- corresponded with the evolution of computer technology and like what they sure. could do right uh same with pop music uh you could throw nine nine inch nails in here as well as an illustration of and it just feel that once computers reached the end once the instrument stopped changing if you think of it that mm-hmm. way uh the music stopped changing as much like there you, you know look everyone makes their own unique stuff but there's no longer a delineation in my mind as much between like, you know, eighties hip hop sounded one way and nineties hip hop is another. And that that's for real. I I don't know that there's as huge of a distinction musically between the 2010s and the 2020s, for instance,
0: I I came across Boogie Nights recently and I I love that movie. And that movie is really talking about events 20 years past. It's like a movie in the late nineties and it moved, you know, dealing with the subject matter of the late seventies and It feels like there's worlds apart but in that movie between the time it was set and the time the movie was made. And really, you're talking about the difference between now and 2003. And it's like, it doesn't... Like, I... It doesn't feel like things have changed, even stuff like fashion. You go from like the 50s to the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and you see how quickly things change. And it feels like in the 21st century, things are not changing that, which is good because I can still wear T-shirts from 13 years ago and I'm not going to feel awkward. Whereas if you're wearing those bell bottoms in the 1980s, you were out of step.
1: Oh, Chris. Yeah. I I didn't want to have this conversation in public, but. You can't wear those t-shirts anymore. Well, <laughs> no, I will again. I, I keep them all. No more ringer tees. No more ringer tees, Chris. The 90s are over.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, And I think, uh, you know, I, I guess that brings us to the end of another series. I always ask the question, Rob, what have we learned?
1: Well, for me, what I have learned, and we've touched on this all throughout, is that these movies are built so much on the chemistry with the two leads that, And frankly, most of the time, the casting is is pretty damn good in these. So for me, what I've learned, even though it's, you know, six episode series, but I'm going to just blanketly say this. Rom coms are one of, if not the most rock solid genre that exists, Yeah. because as long as you have two likable leads, even if you're, you know, and I'm not saying that any of these movies did, but like. You could be messing up whole other parts and it's kind of going to be okay
0: (laughs) because you just want to see these two people. Rob, I had the exact same answer. (laughs) I had the exact same answer because it was – it's like, wow, these really rest on the chemistry. And if you get that right, you can kind of plow through, you know, story problems or structure problems. Yeah. For, for me, in every series, there's
1: been at least one film, and I don't need to rehash which ones, but there's been at least one film that I've been <laughs> angered that I had to watch for the podcast. And that was, that was not the case. This is the first series where I, I never felt that way. It was always just like, oh, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm glad I saw that or saw it again, whatever, <laughs> however you want to do it.
0: I also want to take a second before we go, Rob. Did you realize that this was the 50th episode of Get
1: Me Another? No, because to go with my illiteracy, I also can't count. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. Hey, 50. That's, that's, that's a nice round number.
0: Yeah, we've got 50 episodes. I want to take a moment, uh, 50 episodes in, to thank everyone who has listened and continues to listen. We really appreciate. It. We've had we've had great growth in terms of listeners this year, from year one to year two. And I want to thank all the guests who have come on the show. Uh, it has really been incredibly special. And I want to thank you, Rob, because a year and a half ago, this was a crazy idea, and I never would have been able to do it alone. And and I I, I have enjoyed every I've enjoyed every episode we've recorded. So uh, here's to fifty episodes and to many many more. Here's to fifty. I will also
1: thank you because for for broaching this crazy idea and frankly it was a time where i uh you know unlike now where everything's perfect i needed a little something that would be fun <laughs> and to look forward to uh you know watching some movies and chatting with my yeah. friend and which frankly we did anyway so why not just record it yes. uh, uh exactly and, you know in i'm gonna i'm gonna zig where you zagged though and i'm uh you know i'm gonna berate our audience because we've reached 50 now episodes and i am we're big podcast stars who don't need anyone and i'm just going to do terrible behavior <laughs> and uh, oh patu i spit on you all uh, there now
0: i'm i'm a diva he doesn't He does he's just you know he's yeah. having a you know it's been you know just adios the dishes Rob. yeah yeah <laughs> oh, yes <laughs> <laughs> yes oh my god i've turned into him <laughs> but that said we are far from done because be- our next series Get Me Another Indiana Jones will kick off in three weeks on June 27th, and it will be a -a thrill-a-minute adventure as we explore the films that took inspiration from Raiders of the Lost Ark. So join us again in three weeks on June 27th, because if adventure has a name, it must be Indiana Jones, or J.T. Stryker, or Jake Cutter or Jack Colton, or Alan Quartermain, or Dakota Harris, or Tennessee Buck. You get the idea. And as always, we are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob LaMorgis. If you've enjoyed our show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter and Instagram at Get Pod. As always, tell your friends about the show. Tell your enemies about the show. Tell that one single person in the world who fills your heart with joy about the show. And then crush their business. <laughs> Put them out of business, baby. After you've crushed their business, and join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, Get me another. Kristen Scott Thomas is right there. She's right there, and she loves you.